So uh, welcome. Uh, uh, we've had a, a, a. It's good to see so many people back again, and, and welcome you back. Um, I'm Benjamin Wittes uh, of, of Brookings and the Hoover uh, Working Group, and uh, it's a pleasure to pleasure to be back here. Um, so a couple of brief announcements uh, before we get started. Uh, we are going, we're doing something irregular in the month of March um, in the Security by the Book series, which is we're going to do two events on successive days. On the 13th and 14th, uh, Jack Goldsmith will interview on the 13th Amy Chua, author of Political Tribes, and that will be uh, an evening session like this one. And then the following day, on the, on the 14th, he'll interview uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, on the author of The Square and The Tower. And that'll be a lunchtime event at, at 1230. Uh, and as always, we will record those uh, for the Lawfare podcast. Um, further reminder, uh, in these sessions, because we're recording it for the podcast, we don't take audience questions. We store up your questions and you know, uh, bombard the author uh, after we're done, um, uh, when he will stick around and you know, have a drink and, and, and sign books and answer, answer whatever questions you've got. So with that, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce Max Boot, who uh, it's work I've known for some time, but uh, uh, the last year, uh, one, one of the sort of real pleasures has been uh, actually meeting him, which uh, you know, has been a relatively recent thing for me. Um, and um, uh, this is a book that, frankly, I was surprised to see that he had written. Um, and I, uh, one of the things that I'm interested in talking about. You didn't realize I was literate, right? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that's the reason, because I was surprised that Max was literate. Um, and so I, I, um, I, I actually want to start with uh, the surprising feature of this book, which is you know, why, why write a biography of a, uh, of a CIA uh, covert officer whom like most people have never heard of in conjunction with a, 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 a set of operations and a period of time that are kind of not at the front of people's minds right now. It's just a, a sort of like surprising topic for you, given everything that's going on in the world and given everything that you're writing about. How did you get into Edward Lansdale? Well, that's a good question. First, let me just say that it's also been a pleasure for me to, to get to know Ben, and I have tremendous respect what for what he and the crew at Lawfare are doing. I think they are now the foremost source of following what they insist on calling Lawfare Rus, and that I like to call Kremlin Gate, but whatever you call it, I think they are an indispensable source of insights into, into those questions. Now, in terms of how I d got into the Lansdale book, I initially got interested in Lansdale years ago, and I actually, at a forum in, in, in New York, uh, met a wonderful fellow named Rufus Phillips, who was one of his closest collaborators, and Rufus had graduated from Yale in the 1950s, and as a very young CIA officer, went out to Saigon in 1954 to work for Ed Lansdale. And so he, I had heard of Lansdale before. He was, you know, he was once a quite famous figure, said to be the model uh, for the quiet American, and definitely the model for one of the positive characters in the ugly American. 
and then Rufus got me interested in because he actually was very close to Lionsdale, and I'm delighted to say that Rufus is still very much around and living in northern Virginia in his mid-80s now and was a huge help with the book. So I wrote a little bit about Lansdale in my last book, Invisible Armies, which was a history of guerrilla warfare since the dawn of time. And then when my editor and I, Bob Weil at Norton, were talking about what do I do for an encore, what's my next book, he suggested turning the Lansdale uh, Ed Lansdale into a full-blown book, and I was initially skeptical. I kind of said, well, you know, I've done Lansdale. Why do I want to go back to that? And he just had an intuition, this great editor's intuition, uh, that there was more to be said, and he was dead right. And I was, uh, you know, really blown away by the all, all of the new material that I was lucky enough to stumble upon, including the love letters uh, that Ed Lansdale wrote to his longtime mistress and eventually his second wife, Pat Kelly, this very vivacious Filipina lady that he met when he went to the Philippines in 1945, letters that nobody else had ever seen before and that I was, you know, I just went to track down Pat Kelly's granddaughter who lives in Northern Virginia and she had me come over to the house and said, hey, would you be interested in these letters? And I said, boy, would I? Uh, and then <laughs> I was also lucky enough to, to win the confidence of Ed Lansdale's sons, uh, Ed and, and Pete, uh, who are now in their 60s and 70s, and they shared with me the letters that he had written to their mother. Helen, often simultaneously with the letters uh, to the longtime mistress, Pat Kelly. And again, I'm the first person, I think, after Ed Lansdale himself to have read both sets of letters. And so that gave me unprecedented insight into, into Lansdale and combined with a lot of newly declassified documents. And so I think I've been able to tell the Ed Lansdale story in a way that it, it hasn't been told before. And it's not just, you know, the, the, the story of the individual man. It's, it's also a way to tell the story of our involvement in Vietnam because he's one of the very few Americans who was there in the beginning on the ground floor in 1954 when the state of South Vietnam was being formed. And he was still in, he, he went back to Vietnam and was still there in 1968 when the Tet Offensive was going on. So the story of his life was also the story of our involvement uh, in Vietnam. So let's start with the mythology of Lansdale. Um, Wait, I think it's for you. Uh, yeah, so let, let's also start by silencing our phones if you haven't done so already. Um, start, let's start with the mythology of, of Lansdale, because uh, you, you mentioned that he was believed to be the, the model of, of the quiet American and does show up in fictionalized form in the ugly American. Um, what is the myth of who this guy was, or as you describe it, actually, the many myths of who this guy was? Um, why does the public have an awareness of him at all? Well, there were, there were many myths about Ed Lansdale, including the wildest myth of all, which was that he was the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. I was which, so disappointed to learn that wasn't true. I, 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 well, I, I'm glad you're convinced it wasn't true, because there are people that I can't convince out there who are still going on about this. And in fact, this was the basis of Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. It was actually based on the idea that Ed Lansdale was in charge of this military-industrial complex plot to kill JFK, which makes not a bit of sense. But anyway, that, that's, that's one of the craziest myths out there. Uh, but in, in, it, at a lower level, like more reasonable myths, uh, they are uh, basically the good and the bad. And the good ones uh, hold that uh, Ed Lansdale was this uh, covert action uh, mastermind superstar. He had his you know, his ever-present harmonica, which was the feature, one of the features of the Ed Lansdale-like character in The Ugly American, Colonel Edwin Barnum Hillendale. And so basically the idea being that Ed Lansdale could play a few notes from his harmonica and make governments rise or fall 
uh, almost like a Pied Piper. That's a slight exaggeration, but only slight. And it was ac actually the Kennedy administration, bought, the Kennedys bought into this myth and thought that in the early 60s that Ed Lansdale could overthrow Castro for them in short order as head of Operation Mongoose. And then there was the, of course, uh, Ed Lansdale failed to overthrow Castro. I mean, what he determined pretty quickly was the only way you were going to get rid of Castro in short order with, with an American military invasion. The Kennedys didn't want to do that, so he tried to come up with all these covert action gimmicks in 1962, none of which ultimately worked. And I think that was kind of a turning point in Ed Lansdale's reputation, because up until then, he had this very spooky reputation. And to some extent, he kept it still that he was this, uh, this, this uh, covert action whiz who would, in fact, had been responsible for masterminding the defeat of the Hook Rebellion, the communist insurgency in the Philippines, and then had masterminded the creation of the state of South Vietnam. I mean, all that is true. That wasn't made up. But he had an outsized reputation. And then after the failure of Operation Mongoose, I think his reputation began to go down. And then what happened was he went back to Vietnam from 65 to 68. And he was very much opposed to the course of the American war effort because he didn't think that the firepower approach was going to work. He kept saying you had to build up a stable and viable state in South Vietnam. But he was increasingly a marginal bit player by the mid-60s as, as this huge American war machine took over South Vietnam. And people like uh, Westmoreland and McNamara ran the show and ignored what Ed Lansdale had to say. And so then a lot of the journalists who met him at that time, people like Stanley Carnow and David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan, started thinking that he was kind of a con man and he was this very simplistic advertising man. And so then this new myth formed that Ed Lansdale was kind of this know-nothing American, and which, which I mean, also he was associated with the main character in, in The Quiet American, Alden Powell, who was portrayed by Graham Greene as this naive American interloper. And that became kind of the dominant impression of him, even though, in truth, he probably was not the model for Alden Pyle. And so his reputation kind of went from excessively positive, I would say, to excessively negative. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to present the real Ed Lansdale and to show uh, that he wasn't somebody who could make governments rise and fall with a few notes from his harmonica, but he wasn't. He also was not this simpleton, uh, ad man, con man, what have you, that, that his critics imagined. So before we get to the question of who the real Ed Lansdale was, um, let's start with the question of why we should care. And I, like, so I, I think it's actually a... This is like, like the president, uh, Ted Kennedy, got asked in 1980, which he couldn't answer about why he wanted to be president. Right. <laughs> no, no. So I think, like, you know, it's a sort of improbable thing to say, uh, you know, it's a 600-page it's a or whatever book about, uh, and, and it's not an academic press book. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a commercial book. It's, in fact, uh, a New York Times bestseller. Indeed. It is. A, like, and so the, the, the question, you know, why, why should the public, and apparently does the public, care about a corrective book between two competing mythologies about a formerly legendary CIA official whom most people have never heard of? There's, you know, you're, you're, you, the book does an amazing amount of work about the kind of roots of sort of problems in, in, in modern American foreign policy out of this story. And so why, why do people care? Why should people care? And why, why, why do they? Well, I think it's a fundamentally fascinating story. He was a, 
a, a terrific and complex character who was involved in, in all sorts of interesting doings, the Philippines and in Vietnam and Operation Mongoose. He had an interesting life. I mean, I didn't expect to be writing this great romance of his life between uh, Ed Lansdale and Pat Kelly, this hidden romance, which I write about it at some length. So there's, I mean, shocking me as a knuckle-dragging military historian, there's a romance in this book, uh, <laughs> which I had not expected uh, to be there. Uh, but I think it also is a way to tell a larger story, kind of in the way that Barbara Tuckman did in her book on Vinegar Joe Stilwell and the American Experience in China, or Neil Sheehan did with John Paul Van, who was also a pretty obscure character when he wrote A Bright Shining Lie. And in a similar way, I've tried to tell the story of the Vietnam War from a different angle than the one that you normally get, uh, because normally there is a uh, and, and there was a kind of reflecting the, the partisan division or the political division at the time, there's kind of a hawk-dove divide on Vietnam. The hawkish view, kind of the conservative military view being that we should have bombed them into the Stone Ages, as, as Curtis LeMay said. We didn't use enough force. We fought with one arm tied behind our back. That was the big problem. Then there's the dovish view, which is, well, we should have never been there in the first place. Ho Chi Minh was a great nationalist leader. We couldn't possibly resist uh, his his advance, and it was a huge mistake and just a, a misbegotten intervention. But there was a third view, the, the Ed Lansdale view, which, for what it's worth, I want to present and in, 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 in for, you know, critique and understanding, which is our mistake was not necessarily that we got involved in trying to help South Vietnam, because he was very sympathetic to the idea of trying to keep South Vietnam free from communism uh, and communist domination, which was not something that the people of, of South Vietnam volunteered for. Uh, but he thought that the problem was uh, not that we used insufficient force, but that we were, we Americanized the war, that we used too much force. We didn't focus enough on trying to foster a stable, legitimate, uh, popular, and, and honest government in, in Saigon. And that was the way ultimately to prevail uh, by keeping the American presence small and putting the South Vietnamese in the lead. And what I suggest in the book is that we made a critical wrong turn in 1963 went over Ed Lansdale's objections, the Kennedy administration backed the coup that overthrew No Dinh's Yem. And he's a guy who's been much maligned. If you saw the Ken Burns documentary, it kind of prevents the presents the conventional view of him as being a terrible ruler who had lost the support of his population. And you can certainly make that case. But it doesn't really add up, because if he was so bad, if, if Yem was so awful, why is it that the situation after he was overthrown actually got worse, not better? And in fact, after he was overthrown, the people who followed him were, the, the generals were far less legitimate, much more uh, dishonest, uh, far less successful, just as Ed Lansdale had warned. And we, by, by installing them in power and Americanizing, uh, taking ownership of the, of the war, it was a very short road from there to the involvement of half a million American troops and all these horrors of, of war that Ed Lansdale also opposed. So I think this is a perspective on on the Vietnam War that we have not had before. And I think there is, we can talk about this later, I guess there's also some resonance uh, for how we think about our strategic challenges today in the, in the war on terrorism. Well, so actually I want to talk about that now, because it seems to me one of the most interesting things in the book is an implicit argument throughout it that becomes an explicit argument at, at certain points that is about contemporary policy, which is to say that the way you present Lansdale's view of Vietnam is oriented toward what we would in now call a sort of counterinsurgency model, a uh, building state institutions model, a kind of 
uh, you know, what people would pejoratively call state building, uh, nation building model. Yeah. And I don't view that as a pejorative. No, no, no. but people people yeah. use it as a pejorative. Yeah. I, I, I'm sympathetic. It's a tragedy that it's become a pejorative. Yeah. I, I'm sympathetic to it as well, but it's it's not it's not a popular idea these days. And so I guess my question is, how much of this is is really a sort of history of a new a different way of thinking about Vietnam, and how much of it, as you were writing it, was really about how we should be thinking about Iraq? how we should be thinking about Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, because we also, in our current politics, have a certain dichotomy between bomb them into the Stone Age or get out, right? And the road not taken, referred to in the title, is a road of sustained, serious involvement with a relatively light military footprint, but a heavy investment in the architecture of non-stable, not imperfect, and certainly imperfectly democratic states. So how much of this wow, is you about- You put that very well, actually. That's, you summed it up. That's, that's I applaud you. <laughs> well, that's, I'm, that's, I'm much more interested <laughs> in your account of it than mine. That's my summary, but- Okay, very good job. Well, thank you. Um, I don't need to say anything else. You summed it up. I, I mean, I'm going to make you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how much does Lansdale have to say about the problems the United States faces today? Well, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I didn't write this book because I wanted to project some message about Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, I really wrote the book because I wanted to tell the story about Lansdale, and I'm fascinated by our involvement in Vietnam and by Lansdale's life. and. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to be as true to the history as possible, but at the very end of it, having written the history, I then draw some lessons, and I think there are some lessons to be drawn, and I think the big one is uh, that you need to take seriously the old Clausewitz maxim about how war is a continuation of politics by other means, which is a slogan that we, uh, we hear a lot, but we don't necessarily internalize or take seriously. And Ed Lansdale took it seriously because he really believed that the way you defeat these insurgents is by outgovering them, by fostering a government that will win the support of the people, something he did very successfully in the Philippines uh, by helping uh, to safeguard the, the election process from fraud and by helping or really orchestrating the presidential campaign of Ramon Magsaysay to become president of the Philippines in 1953. And Magsaysay was a very popular, honest reformer, and his election really sealed the defeat of the Hook Rebellion. And then Lansdale tried to apply the same approach in South Vietnam with less success, but with some success, at least in the early going, in <coughs> consolidating No Din Diem's regime and pushing Diem, who was a kind of a Confucian, Catholic, Mandarin, and autocratic in tendency, scholarly and reclusive pushing uh, ZM to be a more outgoing, successful, engaged political figure uh, than was his natural habit to do. And later on, Lansdale kept insisting that the key to the war lay on the, on the governance front. And I think today, I think the same thing is very much true when we think about our experience in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, where we've killed an awful lot of insurgents in the last decade and a half, but we haven't necessarily achieved our, the results that we want in part because the, pol the political situation has remained so screwed up. And I think there, it's beyond there. I mean, there's a tendency in the whole kind of war on terror to use drone strikes or uh, special operations raids, whatever, uh, use military power uh, to take out individual insurgents. And then we're very frustrated 
when, when that military action doesn't actually defeat the insurgency as a whole. But that was a, that was a paradox that Lansdale perceived early, early on in the 1950s, where he saw that you could not kill your way out of these insurgencies. And I think today, you know, that insight is, is pretty commonplace in theory, but not so common in application because we tend to resort to what we're good at, which is basically putting uh, warheads on foreheads. We know how to do that, uh, but we really hate to do nation building. We hate to get the messy involved in messy political affairs of, of, of other countries. And so we, we, we do that in, in a way, but we do it in kind of a uh, half-assed fashion, if I can use that word. Uh, now, now that President Trump is changing the, <laughs> the, the vocabulary of, of Washington, um, and we don't do it in a serious fashion, and, and we, we, tend, we, we tend to sort of do nation building, but we're kind of a nation builder in denial. And I think it would actually make sense for us to recognize that, uh, that we need to do more of this if we're going to be successful in achieving our broader strategic objectives. And I think we need to disassociate the term nation building from what happened in Iraq, because ironically, a lot of the disaster in Iraq was because we didn't want to do nation building. We didn't go in with a game plan to do it. This was the last thing the Bush administration wanted to do. Uh, but in the future, I mean, I, the, I mean we, don't need, we, we shouldn't think of nation building as something you do with hundreds of thousands of troops. You should think about it as something you do ideally with relatively small advisory missions of the kind that Ed Lansdale led. And if you do that successfully, you don't have to send troops later on. Ed Lansdale masterminded the defeat of the Hook Rebellion in the Philippines with a, roughly a dozen other covert operatives, operatives without a single American soldier being risked in battle. And that's similar to the model that we've used in places like El Salvador and Colombia in more recent years. And I think that's a pretty good model if you can apply it. Okay, so let's talk about the Philippines. Um, so, you know, it has become a kind of truism in the modern era that, okay, yeah, we did nation building in Germany and Japan, but there's no other successful examples of it, and we basically suck at it. And, um, and, it's, and every time we try, it's, it's um, you know, going overseas to look for dragons to, to, to defeat, um, and uh, somewhere the word quagmire shows up real fast. Um, and your account of Lansdale's experience in, uh, in the Philippines is astonishing against, against that expectation. And so just walk us through the story. What, what happened in the Philippines and what was the U.S. able to do and uh, what was this guy's role in the story? Well, Ed Lansdale first arrived in the Philippines in 1945 as an army officer. He switched to the Air Force before long, but he was there from 1945 to 1948 and became deeply immersed in Filipino society, acquired a wide variety of Filipino friends. This was, by the way, when he started his romance with Pat Kelly, this Filipino war widow, and she served as an entree point for him into Filipino culture. She actually went to high school with some of the Hook leaders, the communist insurgents, so she introduced him to a lot of the Hook fighters. And so he became very deeply immersed and, and, and deeply knowledgeable in Filipino society in a way that very few other Americans were. Then he went back to the Philippines in 1950 uh, on, on behalf of uh, something called OPC, the Office of Policy Coordination, which was a small covert action outfit that would soon be folded into the CIA. And this was at a time when the Hook Rebellion appeared to be on the verge of success. And the Pentagon was actually drawing up plans to send large numbers of troops to the Philippines to avert a communist takeover. But those plans were not implemented uh, because US troops were needed in Korea. This, the Korean War 
uh, started in uh, June of 1950. And so that sucked away troops. So there were no troops to send to the Philippines. So instead of sending the troops, the decision was made uh, at the CIA to send Ed Lansdale on a small covert action team uh, to defeat the Hook Rebellion. And essentially, they did that uh, by brainstorming ideas with Filipinos and Americans on the ground, but principally by with Lansdale befriending Ramon Magsaysay, who had just been appointed defense minister of the Philippines. He was a former guerrilla fighter against the Japanese, former senator. Uh, an honest guy who wanted to defeat the Hooks, didn't know how, and Lansdale essentially showed him the way by pioneering what we would today call counterinsurgency doctrine, this notion that you want to use less force rather than more. He said that the Filipino army needed to stop bombarding barrios with artillery, treat the people as brothers, protect them, win their trust and confidence, and then they would rat out the insurgents in their midst, and that's exactly what happened. And the other aspect of it was, as I mentioned earlier, that Lansdale also perceived that there had to be a political solution, a, a way of addressing the grievances of the Hooks, who were these dispossessed small farmers who were getting screwed by this feudal oligarchy that controlled Filipino society. And so Lansdale uh, safeguarded the, the balloting process, enlisting Filipino civic organizations. And then he masterminded uh, Ramon Magsaysay's 1953 presidential campaign you know, doing everything, including writing a campaign slogan for Magsaysay, which was, Magsaysay is my guy. And so he became known as the guy uh, throughout the Philippines. Really, politics 101. You can read about it now because his cable to CIA director Alan Dulles, uh, top secret cable, has now been declassified, explaining how he won the 1953 election. And that was really the, the blow that defeated the Hook Rebellion because with Magsaysay uh, having won this landslide victory, the Hooks had no more reason to keep fighting because they saw that they could, uh, they could have their political grievances redressed through the political process. And so that was the making of the Lansdale legend and, and, and his first nickname, which was Landslide Lansdale. <laughs> All right, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of threads packed into that, and I want to tease out a couple of them. Uh, the first is... Uh, the 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 sense that you cannot replace through military means political solutions, right? You got You got to identify. Yes. You got to identify the difference between a military objective and a political objective, yes. and figure out the figure figure out how to accomplish the political objective by politics if you can. Yeah, and, and you can use force, but the force needs to be in pursuit of the political objective. It can't be divorced from the from the political line of operations, as is so often the case. So in the introduction to the book, you make clear that uh, this is a self-conscious idea on his part, that he's that he's sort of contemptuous of, of people who, um, you know, who believe you can short circuit what are fundamentally political processes uh, through blunt military instruments. Um, in the Philippine context, how much of the success is the fact that he doesn't have access to those you know, you don't have the choice, as you later do in Vietnam, well, we can do this by political means, or we can just bomb the crap out of them, right? And so because... It's affecting you, too. Standards are slipping all over <laughs> Washington. Right. Well, so 
the fact that you don't have the choice means that you have to be quite inventive politically. And how much of it was uh, you know, a sort of philosophical or ideological position on his part he wouldn't have used, uh, you know, active military operations in, 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 in at scale if he could have. It was an active choice on his part. He, he didn't want large numbers of American troops sent to either the Philippines or Vietnam. He wanted U.S. forces in a small-scale advisory mission. And he wasn't averse to the use of force. In fact, he counseled uh, the Philippine Army how to make their anti-hook operations more effective. In other words, basing them on intelligence so that they weren't just blundering around and killing people randomly, but actually trying to figure out where the hook units were and using very targeted uh, means to, to get the hook leaders, using a subterfuge to, to trick them into, uh, into surrendering and, and doing other things, uh, and you know, uh, even putting the fear of the supernatural into them because uh, he took advantage of their superstitions about the Aswang uh, the vampires who were said to haunt the Philippine countryside and had a Philippine army unit take a dead hook and put a couple of puncture wounds in his neck in order to uh, spread the rumor that he'd been killed by a vampire. So, I mean, he was certainly not averse to, to getting his hands dirty and, and, and doing some, uh, some, some tough-minded things, but he was always very clear that the critical line of operations had to be political and it had to be done by the Filipinos themselves, that we couldn't do it for them. He had to uh, uh, he had to figure out how to get the Filipinos to address their own problems, and that was really his genius. He was a leadership whisperer. He was somebody who could really bond with somebody like Magsaysay or so many other leaders throughout the Philippines, uh, and, and with empathy and understanding and humility, uh, kind of pushed them along a, a, what would turn out to be a successful path. Okay, so I was going to save this question for later, but since you, but since you asked the leaders, you said the words leadership whisper, I'm going to raise it now. You know, there's another recent American leadership whisperer who is uh, now facing charges in federal court in Washington and Virginia for money laundering, and it's Paul Manafort, okay. right? And, I right, would have never thought of Paul Manafort and Ed Lansdale well, in the same sentence. So, oh, okay. Exactly. <laughs> I, but for exactly that reason, I, I want to, you know, so Paul Manafort goes abroad, right, you know, go, works with an authoritarian, quasi-democratic, you know, democratically elected authoritarian leader, Viktor Yanukovych, very close to him, advises him politically. Right, and yet you would say you have n would never think of them in the same yeah, sense. I mean, I think this is. I, 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 I'm thinking of a line from Get Smart. If only <laughs> Paul Manafort had used his <laughs> gifts for good rather than evil. Okay, so, so, so walk us through what is. I mean, I, it's. I, I think it's an interesting little exercise. What is the diff? What are the fundamental differences between what Paul Manafort is doing and what Ed Lansdale is doing? Well, for starters, Ed Lansdale was not a corrupt sleazeball, so that's, <laughs> that's one big difference. Okay, that's one. Uh, that's one. Let's think of others. Uh, I mean, I think the big difference is Paul Manafort was in this, as far as I can tell, for Paul Manafort. I mean, he was in this to make a buck. He wasn't in this to try to reform Yanukovych or improve life in the Ukraine or to achieve American foreign policy objectives. He was in it to buy as many houses and suits and God knows what else Rugs. is possible. Rugs. Rugs. It's possible, yes. Uh, okay, well. so what was Ed Lansdale, what was Ed Lansdale in it for? 
Ed Lance. What, what was animating? Yeah, he was, believe it or not, and, and I know this people will be incredulous in Washington in 2018, but he was actually in it for the right reasons because he actually wanted to A, help his country, and B, help the people of the Philippines and Vietnam, many of whom were his friends. And he genuinely believed, and I know this is shocking and, 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 and almost unbelievable in the cynical atmosphere of Washington in 2018, but he genuinely believed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Those were genuinely the principles that he sought to promote as an agent of American power, and he thought that we could combine our ideals uh, with with our hard-headed objectives, and he thought that actually promoting those ideals would help us to achieve our objectives because this would be an ideal that would prove more powerful than communism and could actually win the people of Vietnam and the Philippines for the free world side for the United States because of democracy and freedom would have greater appeal uh, than communist dictatorship. And Graham Greene thought he was hopelessly naive for that. He made fun of um, Americans like Lansdale, who believed in this third force, because Graham Greene thought, as a, as a cynical old British imperialist, that the only choices were either colonialism or communism. But Lansdale really believed in freedom. And uh, he was genuine in that belief. He was often written off as naive or a do-gooder or, or uh, you know, somebody uh, who was simple-minded for those reasons, but I, he actually had a fairly sophisticated understanding of the societies in the Philippines and Vietnam and, uh, and spent a lot more time in those places than many of his critics did, and he understood that it wasn't stupid uh, to push for more representative and more honest government because he thought that was the way to defeat the communists and to foster long-term stability. And, one, you know, I spent five years living with this guy and, 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 and became very deeply immersed in his life, and I didn't, I mean, I... I, I try to present him warts and all. This is not a hagiography. Hey, he made a lot of mistakes. He got a lot of things wrong. But at the end of the day, uh, I found it pretty easy to live with him because I think he was fundamentally a well-intentioned, good guy, trying to do the right thing, often frustrated uh, because his good intentions were, uh, did not come to fruition and were, and were ground down by the Washington bureaucracy, which he hated, but fundamentally trying to do the right thing. I'm not sure you can say the same thing about Paul Manafort. <laughs> so all right, better than Paul Manafort. That's, that's, uh, let's, uh, let's, before we get to his genuinely catastrophic failure, which is Cuba, let's, let, let's, let's talk about Vietnam, which is a US failure. But in your account, it's kind of a Lansdale, it's a really complicated story from his point of view, because there's some early success. To the extent it's a failure, ultimately, it's a failure at least we can hypothesize because some of his advice and counsel was not followed. Um, so tell the story of, of Lansdale in Vietnam and what he was able to accomplish and then what he was not able to accomplish. Well, he first was sent to uh, Saigon in the summer of 1954 by CIA Director Alan Dulles at a time when the state of South Vietnam was just being created. Vietnam had just been divided at the Geneva Conference between North Vietnam to be ruled by Ho Chi Minh and the Communists and this new state of South Vietnam. And nobody quite knew, how do you create this, this non-communist state in South Vietnam? And so the Dulles brothers decided to send Landslide Lansdale to Saigon and see what he could do. And he arrived there a few weeks before No Dinh Diem showed up, who was this Catholic Confucian Mandarin who had just been appointed prime minister of the state of South Vietnam. And in the summer of 1954, very few people imagined that ZM could last uh, nine weeks, much less nine years in power, and the fact that he was able to consolidate his authority 
owed a lot to the advice that he received from Lansdale, uh, who, un who won ZM over and then, with his support, implemented a wide variety of pacification schemes, for example, enlisting the U.S. Navy to move 900,000 refugees from North Vietnam to South Vietnam to strengthen the state of South Vietnam, creating something called Operation Brotherhood to bring over Filipino doctors and nurses to provide free medical care to the people of South Vietnam to win them over for the government, and doing a host of other things. Uh, and then finally backing, critically backing ZM up in the spring of 1955 in the Battle of Saigon, when with Lansdale's encouragement, ZM sent the South Vietnamese army into the streets of the capital to battle these sect militia forces that were threatening the authority of the central government. It was a very tough street battle, touch and go for a while. Lansdale's boss, uh, General Lightning Joe Collins, who was a four-star general and U.S. ambassador, wanted to abandon ZM, uh, but Lansdale went over his head, went to Alan Dulles, who in turn went to President Eisenhower, overruled the ambassador, maintained U.S. support behind ZM, and that allowed ZM to prevail against the insurgents and to pretty well consolidate his rule by the time that Lansdale left Vietnam at the end of 1956. So that was kind of the height of Ed Lansdale's success when he was the most powerful American in Vietnam. And thanks to his uh, expert advice, ZM uh, managed to, uh, to assert his authority. And there was not a major internal threat against him at that point. The communist uh, attack, major attack, had not yet started. So things looked pretty good. Now, unfortunately, things started to go a little bit uh, downhill as soon as Ed Lansdale left because nobody in the U.S. government thought it was important to replace the function that Ed Lansdale played. He was an Air Force officer at that point on loan to the CIA, but he was really this extraordinarily powerful political advisor who was the American closest to ZM. And after he was gone, nobody thought that we kind of got complacent, sort of in the way we got complacent in Iraq when we pulled our troops out in 2011. People assumed, oh, this is a done deal. Everything is under control. We don't have to worry about it. And instead of sending another political advisor to get close to ZM, the CIA kind of reverted to its comfort zone, which was paying off the cleaning lady in the presidential palace to steal uh, ZM's uh, waste paper basket and take it to the station for analysis. And Lansdale thought this was absurd uh, because when he wanted to find out what ZM was doing, he would go and ask ZM, and ZM would tell him he didn't need to <coughs> steal his, his waste. But this was kind of the agency mindset is that they had to steal the secrets, and they would be better secrets if they stole them rather than simply asking ZM about it. And so without Lansdale's restraining influence, no Din ZM fell under the influence of his conspiratorial fascist French-educated brother, No Din Nu, who pushed them on a much more authoritarian direction, and No Din Nu's wife, the infamous dragon lady, Madame Nu, uh, who uh, gained hold over ZM and pushed him into a very repressive direction, which initially was successful. He man you know, nor communist historians later conceded that, he, that ZM managed to destroy most of the communist infrastructure in the South in the late 1950s, but Lansdale, even at the time, perceived uh, that this strategy could backfire because by locking up a lot of people who are not necessarily communists, you're actually driving moderate nationalists into the ranks of the communists. And that's, in fact, what happened. And ZM's repression sparked a, a communist insurgency. And then, of course, uh, things really spun out of control in 1963 when you had the Buddhist revolt, Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire in the streets of Saigon, which convinced the Kennedy administration that they should overthrow 
uh, ZM in order to protect the anti-communist cause. Ed Lansdale warned against that. He said, I know ZM, I know he's imperfect, but we can work with him. Please send me over there. I can move Nodenu out of the way and, and get ZM on a more conciliatory path. And later, people like Walt Rostow said this was the last chance to salvage the state of South Vietnam, but that chance was not taken because Lansdale had so many bureaucratic enemies who prevented him from being sent over there. The Kennedy administration ignored him, went ahead with the anti-ZM coup, which ironically began at the beginning of November 1963, on the very day when Lansdale was being forcibly retired as a two-star general from the Pentagon. Uh, and that was a tragedy. That was, you know, I view that as a real turning point when the war was Americanized and 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 instability was lost in South Vietnam. Uh, and you want me to keep going with Lansdale in Vietnam, or is that? In, uh, well, in, in summary terms, yeah. yeah. I mean, just just, just finish up finish yeah, up the arc yeah, of just, the story. Just very quickly, Lansdale went back to Vietnam from '65 to '68, working uh, for the U.S. Embassy. But increasingly, he was an odd man out because he didn't. He, he just fundamentally disagreed with General William S. Moreland, who thought that you could kill the Viet Cong faster than they could be replaced. And Lansdale consistently said, no, there's no way we're going to kill our way out of this insurgency. You have to govern your way out. You have to try to fight corruption and increase the effectiveness and legitimacy of the South Vietnamese government. He wanted to promote reformist generals who would be honest and not on the take, but there was no interest in either Saigon and Washington because there was this assumption that massive American firepower would take care of, of the enemy and we didn't have to worry about the nature of the government in South Vietnam. So once again, Lansdale was ignored. But in hindsight, uh, I think what he had to say was prophetic because a, as he foresaw, we would not be fighting in Vietnam forever. And once we pulled our troops out, the South Vietnamese government had to stand and fall or stand and, and stand or fall on its own, and because it was so illegitimate, so corrupt, uh, it, it was not able to stand on its own in the 1970s, and so uh, it, it finally collapsed in a, in a communist invasion in 1975. So, okay, I can read this story in one of two ways. The first way says Lansdale was a kind of Cassandra, at least in the second half. First half, he shows proof of concept. We abandon the proof of concept, uh, i.e., the road not taken. Um, and things fall apart, and he watches appalled and kind of argues against it, and nobody listens to him. The second is a little bit hierarch, you know, less personal history, right? Um, South Vietnam was not a plausible state. Um, and yeah, you could get it going, but you couldn't keep it going. You couldn't keep it going if you were Ed Lansdale. We don't know that he could have, um, he gets pulled out. So the failure, the, the beginning of the failure doesn't happen while he's there. So he kind of gets the good side of the, the story, the, the, the erection of the, of the structure, but he can't, he wouldn't have been able to sustain the structure anyway. He sounds great in this second half because he's saying all these things that we didn't in fact try, but they would have failed as well because in fact what worked in the Philippines wouldn't have worked for some reason against a committed, serious uh, foreign threat rather than just an internal uh, threat from, from, from the Hook Rebellion. This was a serious, quite professional army on the other side, in addition to the, the, the internal threat. And 
So maybe you're giving him too much credit. And so my question is, how certain are you that the road not taken led to somewhere acceptable rather than just a different path to the same place that we ended up? Well, uh, to be clear, my, my claim is a relatively limited and I think reasonable one because I'm not sitting here and suggesting that if only we had listened to Ed Lansdale, the state of South Vietnam would still exist, we would have won the war, everything would have been wonderful. Uh, that's possible. I mean, maybe that would have in fact happened. We just don't know. And, I'm, and I certainly concede in the book and, and, and concede here that it's quite possible that even if we had listened to Ed Lansdale, we still would have lost because North Vietnam uh, as you suggest, was a formidable adversary with greater will to win than, than we had in, in the final analysis. So we just don't know what would have happened. But of one thing I am pretty certain, which is that if Ed Lansdale had been listened to, and even if we had still lost, we would not have lost at the cost of 58,000 dead Americans and millions of dead Vietnamese because he never wanted to see that big unit war in the first place. He wanted the South Vietnamese to take responsibility for their own defense. And then if they had lost, well, that would have been tragic, but it would not have been the catastrophe that it ultimately became. Cuba, um, hard to tell a good, like, pro-Lansdale, I mean, a story there. He, it just looks like a bad outcome that he contributed to. What's, what's the best, what's the best uh, account of that from his point of view? Well, he wasn't happy or proud of his involvement in, in Cuba. He later said that was one of the things that he most regretted. Uh, but it's hard to turn down an assignment when the President of the United States and his brother, the Attorney General, say, you're the man that we want. And they were convinced that he was the American James Bond and he was going to overthrow Fidel Castro for them. Uh, you know, he, he as, as I think I mentioned earlier, he, he fairly quickly ascertained that the only way you're going to overthrow Castro was with an American military invasion. But the Kennedys didn't want to do that. They wanted some kind of covert action gimmick. And, and so he tried to give it to him. And I think this is one of his failures to speak truth to power because he was very proud of the fact that in Vietnam he spoke truth to power, and he really did. He had major uh, dust-ups with people like Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in, in Westmoreland and others where he flat out told them that they were wrong and what they were doing wasn't going to work. And he paid a heavy price in his career for speaking truth to power in those instances. But he did not speak truth to power when it came to Cuba and Operation Mongoose. He didn't go back to Bobby Kennedy and say, you know, uh, son, this ain't going to work. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is crazy. He tried to give the Kennedys what they wanted, in the, which was to overthrow Castro, in the hope that they, in turn, would give him what he wanted, uh, which was a ticket back to Saigon and to influence U.S. policy on Vietnam. And, you know, obviously there was no immediate covert action gimmick that would result in Castro's overthrow. Uh, and subsequent, and, and his, his failure in Mongoose damaged him internally within the U.S. government. It caused him to lose the patronage of the Kennedys, and it greatly damaged his reputation in later years. Uh, because in 1975, you had the church committee hearings, which exposed a lot of what he had done in Mongoose and it exposed some of the assassination plots, which I don't believe he was directly implicated in. But nevertheless, a lot of the stuff that happened in Mongoose, uh, uh, you could kind of uh, ch chortle over incredulously years later. Uh, one of the things that most hurt his reputation was this scheme that was dubbed by his CIA rivals. And one of the undercurrents here is that 
the, the, the mainstream CIA did not like him very much because he was not a professional agency guy. And so they were eager to undercut him at every turn. And they got their chance in 1975 when these CIA guys testified before the church committee and told them about Lansdale's crazy elimination, what they dubbed his elimination by illumination scheme. This was not what Lansdale called it. This is what they called it. Uh, but the basic idea being that uh, you would surface a U.S. submarine off the coast of Havana at night and fire star shells into the sky and couple this with a rumor campaign that the second coming of, of, of the Savior was, was nigh and that, you know, you had to give up on this godless atheist Castro and, and get right with the Lord because the day of judgment was upon us. Um, now, Lansdale in, just denied flat out that he'd ever said anything this crazy and, you know, accused these CIA guys of lying about him. In fact, going into the declassified records, I actually found the memo that Lansdale had written in 1962. It wasn't called Illumination by Illumination, but that was basically the scheme. Uh, and so he was very embarrassed that this came out. In his defense, what I will say is he was by no means uh, the source, the sole, sole source of crazy schemes to get rid of Castro because the CIA, without his help, came up with ideas like slipping doctored stogies to Castro that would make his beard fall out or uh, booby-trapping a, a, a shell in the ocean where Castro would pick it up while he was going skin diving. And, and it would explode. But they could never figure out how they would direct him to that very shell <laughs> in the ocean. Uh, so there were all sorts of crazy ideas that the CIA had to get rid of Castro, both before and after Ed Lansdale came on the scene. But there is no question that his Operation Mongoose involvement uh, hurt his reputation and made it easy for his critics to caricature him as this, as this uh, con man, ad man, a guy not to be taken seriously. At the end of the day, What's his legacy? What's what 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 should a what should a reasonable person thinking about today's problems uh, with historical awareness take from the successes and failures of Ed Lansdale? Well, I will uh, uh, you know cite a, a a negative lesson as well as a positive lesson. The negative lesson has to do with the fact that one of Ed Lansdale's paradoxes was that he was very good at winning over foreign leaders, not so good at winning over US leaders. Uh, and in fact, he alienated a lot of people in the bureaucracy. One of his former subordinates, the late General Sam Wilson, uh, said to me, you know, Ed Lansdale basically treated the bureaucracy as an enemy, and in so doing, he made it one. And as a result of that, his career was cut short, and he didn't have the influence that he might have had. So his his kind of kamikaze attacks on the bureaucracy were ultimately self-defeating. So that's the negative lesson. The positive lesson is he was really somebody who figured out how to use empathy as a tool of war, how to mobilize emotional intelligence and send it marching into battle. And that's a tremendously valuable skill set. He was able to bond with people like Lan with Mog Sai Sai and NZM. And how did he do it? By listening rather than lecturing. And we Americans love to go to the developing world and tell people what to do. And that wasn't the Lansdale approach at all. He was extremely patient in listening to people. And that wasn't easy to do with somebody like No Din Ziem, who was a notorious windbag who would go on for hour after hour and bored most Americans to tears. But Ed Lansdale was made of sterner stuff and probably had a stronger bladder uh, because he would sit there for hour after hour listening to Ziem drone on, at the end of that time, he would say, well, that's fascinating, Mr. President. If I understand what you're saying, it's X, Y, and Z. And then he would rephrase 
what Ziem had told him, putting across his own ideas, but making Ziem think that he had said it himself. Now that's a very subtle but very effective method of operating. It works with bosses, uh, it works with spouses, and it definitely works with foreign heads of state. So that's a model we should think about because I think we need effective advisors to deal with our security challenges today. And there were, there were few advisors as effective as Ed Lansdale. So I think that Lansdale methodology can usefully be emulated. And I think we could really use an army of Ed Lansdales today to fan out to these frontline states in the war on terror and to try to uh, increase their effectiveness to battle our common enemies. Before we let you go, just give us a sense of the final act. So he's, uh, what, are, what are his last years like, and, and what, how does the story end? Well, from a professional level, his, his life ended in, in failure. Uh, the, the fall of South Vietnam in 1975, which was crushing to him, so many of his friends became refugees, and he helped them to escape to the United States. But all of his work in trying to safeguard the state of South Vietnam lay in ashes. Uh, and he was tortured by the what-ifs and might-have-beens and what if his advice had been listened to. But he did find some personal happiness uh, because after his first wife, Helen, died, his longtime Filipino mistress, Pat Kelly, who was still unmarried and just retired from the U.S. Information Agency in Manila, uh, came over to the United States. And on July 4th of 1973, Ed Lansdale and Pat Kelly got married. And then they lived happily ever after in, in their little home in Northern Virginia. And so they, their, their, their final years were happy ones together, uh, even though Ed Lansdale was very unhappy about the fate of, of Vietnam. And also, by the way, unhappy about the fate of the Philippines, because there was another tragedy there, because his good friend Ramon Magsaysay died in an airplane crash in 1957. And the Filipino politics, again, reverted to corruption and despotism. Uh, you had the rise of Fidel Marcos and undoing a lot of the good government reforms that Ed Lansdale tried to implement in the 1950s. So again, uh, not happy professionally, but uh, there was this heartwarming romance that I really enjoyed writing about and, 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 and describing. And I, I actually cried when, in 1956, Ed Lansdale was going back to Washington from Vietnam, and Pat Kelly wrote him a, a letter breaking up with him, and just which I quote extensively in the book, just a very sad I thought it was very sad because I was so into their relationship, uh, reading all their correspondence. And I was pretty happy at a personal level that the story from had a happy ending that they finally got married and, and, and lived together. On that cheerful note, Max Boot, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.